Sword and Scale contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I couldn't even see there was so much blood because I'd been over and it was all just rushing down my face. And he puts the guns in my face like this and starts pulling the trigger. He definitely meant to kill me. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 208 of Sword and Scale, a show that reveals that the worst monsters are real. announcement before we get into it season three of sword scale is now available only exclusively on plus that's the only place you can find it it's been removed from the regular feed because you know it's a business model you can still get it there just join plus at swordscale.com plus the first three seasons are available along with all the plus content which is a lot so go check it out swordscale.com plus It was Valentine's Day, 1974. At this moment in time, Richard Nixon was President of the United States and was in the midst of waging a war with Vietnam, while also preparing for the fallout of the Watergate scandal. The television series Happy Days had recently debuted on ABC. The Miami Dolphins had just won the Super Bowl, and Barbara Streisand's The Way We Were was the number one song in the country. In many ways, the lives of Americans in the mid-1970s weren't much different than ours today. Young Americans at that time lived through a controversial war. They saw a president impeached, and music, sports, and television storylines were regular topics of conversation. The most important difference between then and now is how science and technology has changed our lives and our understanding of the world around us. Since then, methods of travel, food distribution, communication, and healthcare have changed dramatically. And let's not forget about that little invention we call the internet. For better or worse, technology has significantly changed everyday life in America. We all know this. And we also know that it has significantly changed the way that police investigate the thing you're waiting to hear about. Murder. Forensic science has improved tremendously since the 1970s, and police departments are now able to apply new technology to unsolved murder cases that were committed many decades ago. Which is exactly what two cold case detectives recently did in Tarrant County, Texas. On February 17, 1974, at about 1.30 a.m., 
Benbrook, Texas residents Mr. and Mrs. Walker were awake in their upper middle class home, as were two of their children. Suddenly, all four of them heard someone screaming in their front yard, along with the sounds of loud bangs on their front door. While frightened, but also curious, the Walker children looked to see what all the commotion was about. Through a screen window, they saw that a young man was banging on the front door. The young man's face was covered in blood, and he was screaming, they got her, over and over again. I do remember very specifically, because I looked at him through the screen, the light was on, and I, I remember seeing, it looked like panic in his eyes. We opened the door, front door, he came in, mm-hmm. and took him immediately into the kitchen, mm-hmm. sat him down, dad told me to go get a washcloth. Mm-hmm. What did he look like? He had blood on his face. I mean... Wet or dry? It, it, it wasn't... I don't remember any blood running, coming yeah. down. Uh, all within this time period, um, Dad was already moving to go get his gun. Mom told Mom to call the police. And then um, all hell broke loose after that. The young man that the Walker parents let into their home wasn't a stranger. In fact, he was someone they knew quite well. He was 18-year-old... Rodney McCoy, and earlier that evening, Rodney had taken one of their daughters to a high school dance. 17-year-old Carla Walker had been dating Rodney McCoy for just over a year, and by all accounts, they were the model example of an all-American couple. We met at a party, a high school party. It was love at first sight. (laughs) It really was. So kind of hot and heavy. Pretty quickly. I mean, you know, just, I don't know, I just love being around her and her family. I really mm-hmm. did. According to Rodney, he fell in love with his high school sweetheart the moment he laid eyes on her. For him, Carla Walker was the dream girlfriend. Her personality was, it was sweet. I describe her as the most wonderful giggle that I've ever heard in my life. And the beautiful smile and everything I wanted. I mean, I was deeply in love. I I thought about her in the morning, the first thing, and thought about her into the night. Mm -hmm. When asked about her, Rodney spoke glowingly of his then-girlfriend Carla, and he wasn't the only one who thought so highly of her. Carla was a junior at Western Hills High School, where she excelled with nearly perfect grades. As a member of the pep squad, Carla was extremely popular. Although her popularity wasn't hurt by the fact that Carla was one of the prettiest girls in her school, it was her caring and resolved personality that earned her the respect of many close friends. According to those friends, at heart, Carla was compassionate. She cared deeply about people, but she also had a flair about her. Despite being only 4 feet 11, Carla knew when and how to stand her ground. If you said or did the wrong thing around her, you could be sure that Carla would let you know. Carla began dating Rodney McCoy when she was a sophomore, and their relationship continued through the summer and into her junior year. During that time, Rodney and Carla didn't keep to themselves. They were especially social, and weekend date nights usually consisted of going to the drive-in movie theater with a group of friends, or going to large high school parties at the nearby Benbrook Lake. 
For Rodney, as he grew ever more in love with Carla, he also grew closer to her family. So you spent a lot of time with the family? Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, first few times, uh, probably more than a few times, but I'd knock on the door mm-hmm. or ring the doorbell. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, Carla's mom goes, don't knock on our door. You don't knock on our door anymore. You come in the door, your family. Carla's parents accepted Rodney into their family and fully approved of him dating their daughter. As far as their relationship was concerned, everything seemed perfect. But Carla had a concern. She was a junior in high school and Rodney was a senior. This begged the question, what would happen after Rodney graduated? Well, we were talking and, uh, and I was going to graduate. Carla was worried, you know, going, are you going to go to college and it's going to be oh, all this and all that? And I, I, just, I, I told her, I go, look, I'll take a year off and then go to college. And if we're still together, we'll go to college together. And that made her feel really good. And I was serious, you know, mm-hmm. that I was going to do that. I'll just take it. I'll wait for you. Rodney and Carla were in it for the long haul. As two teenagers deeply in love with each other, they both fully committed to the relationship and planned to attend college together. But then came the night of Saturday, February 16th. Early that day, Rodney had finished a work shift at a local gas station and then headed home to get ready for a Valentine's Day dance that was being held at his high school. After that, went home, took a shower, and got cleaned up for the uh, Valentine's dance. Went and picked up Carla. She was dressed beautiful, you yeah. know. What did the dress look like? It was uh, it was a long blue dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of silky maybe. Have yeah. her hair all dolled up. Oh yeah, and I just uh, I smiled. Mm-hmm. So you were just happy you were with the prettiest girl in, in the place, huh? Mm-hmm. Rodney picked up Carla and drove her to the dance. Once there, they met up with friends, danced, and for the most part, it was a typical date night. Then, as the dance came to an end, Rodney and Carla linked up with another couple. At some point, Gary comes to me and says, Rodney wants to know if we want to go hang out with him. And I knew it was going to be um, pot and drinking. So we go out the front door from the dance, we get in their car, and um, I'm kind of in awe because I don't, I'm just this little person over here, you know, this is football player and a cheerleader. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter who you were in school, you knew who they were. Rodney and Carla weren't just a popular high school couple, they were the high school couple. Rodney was the quarterback of his high school football team, and Carla was his beautiful blonde-haired pep squad member girlfriend. The two of them were Mr. and Mrs. Western Hills High, and everyone in the school knew who they were. In any case, after their friends joined Rodney and Carla in Rodney's car, the four teenagers drank liquor and smoked a joint. Then, they drove to the nearby Taco Bell to cure their munchies. After that, they briefly drove around town until ending up at the local bowling alley. That particular night was league night at the alley, and there were several cars in the parking lot. Why did you guys go to the bowling alley? No particular reason. So did anybody say, hey, let's go there? Or No, Ronnie was just driving around. 
So we get there, and Carla says, I need to throw up. And she gets out, and she walks in, and then comes back a little bit later. And then from there, you head back to the high school Mm -hmm. to go get Gary's car. Right. Rodney drove back to the high school to drop off the other couple. Then, according to Rodney, he and Carla went back to the bowling alley. Carla, I think, had to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And that's why we went back to the bowling alley. So basically, you were at the bowling alley twice? Yeah. The we first were, time with the couple, the second time alone? Yes. Okay. That's, that's the way I remember it. Rodney claimed that, to the best of his recollection, after he and Carla arrived at the bowling alley for the second time, the two of them went inside to use the restrooms. Then they returned to Rodney's car, which was parked in the bowling alley parking lot. And it's my mother's car I had a bench seat, and Carla was, you know, she was just turning around, leaning against the door. And I, I came over, and we started kissing and making out, and just, and that's when the door just, you know, popped open, mm-hmm. and she starts falling, and I'm grabbing her, holding, you know, keeping her from falling. She's still falling, and it's kind of pulling me, I guess, pulling me out. According to Rodney, Carla was leaning against the passenger side door while the two of them were kissing. Then suddenly, the passenger door opened. Carla fell backward and Rodney fell forward on top of her. Then, Rodney felt a tremendous force hit the back of his head. I was holding on to her for dear life, and she was screaming, quit hitting him, quit hitting him, you know. And I don't know how many times he hit me, but... When I, when I, you know, it was just like I was totally paralyzed, totally. Everything was ringing and blood, blood. I couldn't even see there was so much blood because I'd been over and it was all just rushing down my face and eyes and everything. Rodney claimed that someone repeatedly hit him on the back of the head. And when he was finally able to look up and clear the blood that had run into his eyes, he saw what they had been using to beat him over the head trying to clear my eyes and he puts the guns in my face like this and starts pulling the trigger and it's like three times maybe or something and I guess he realized then the clip had had fallen out I don't know I don't think he knew the clip had fallen out Uh he meant to kill me he definitely meant to kill me Rodney saw a pistol pointing at his face but he was too disoriented and blinded to see who was holding it When the gunman pulled the trigger to shoot Rodney, nothing happened because the clip had fallen out during the beating. So, the attacker resumed pistol-whipping Rodney over the head. And she said, quit hitting him, I'll go with you. When they're out of the car, she she says, go get dad, is what she said. She said, go get daddy, go get him. And that's when I just faced Based first on the seat. I was out. The gunman snatched up Carla and fled. Carla screamed out, telling Rodney to go to her father. Then Rodney passed out. And according to him, when he finally came to, he raced to Carla's house. Once there, he frantically tried to explain to Carla's family what had happened. Strangely, he kept telling Carla's dad that they got her, which would indicate that more than one person was involved in the abduction. He just kept saying they. They, they. He said they. So you heard they multiple oh, times? Oh, yes. 
Soon after Rodney told the walkers what happened, the police were called. An ambulance arrived and rushed Rodney to the hospital. Meanwhile, Carla's dad went to the bowling alley, where he met with police. There, they found Carla's purse on the ground, along with a clip for a pistol, which was consistent with Rodney's story. But there was nothing else. No witnesses. And Carla was nowhere to be found. A massive search effort was soon launched to find Carla, but the search abruptly ended after the third day. Three days later, just alongside of the road in a culvert here near Benbrook Lake, Carla's body was found. She had been beaten, raped, and strangled. Police say repeatedly tortured for days. And in an interesting twist and a puzzling discovery, the medical examiner ruled she had been injected with morphine. Carla Walker was dead, beaten, raped, and strangled to death. Her body dumped in a narrow cement tunnel near a lake. And she had reportedly been injected with a drug that in 1974 was extremely rare, morphine. It took three days for the police to find Carla's body, but it would take much, much longer for them to identify her killer. In fact, the 1974 case of murdered all-American teenage girl Carla Walker would remain unsolved for decades. And her killer wouldn't be brought to justice for over 45 years. In February of 1974, the dead body of 17-year-old Carla Walker was found near Benbrook Lake in Tarrant County, Texas. Carla had been beaten, raped, and strangled to death, and the only witness was Carla's boyfriend. 18-year-old Rodney McCoy claimed that a mysterious gunman attacked him and kidnapped Carla from a bowling alley three days before the discovery of her body. Carla's body was found inside a long, narrow cement culvert, which is just a tunnel that allows the passage of water under a roadway. This particular culvert, however, was dried out, and that allowed easy access for the responding detectives. One thing, this was February and it was cold, and she was up in that culvert. And it's also like a refrigerator. When she was found, she looked like she'd just been murdered. Since the month was February and the culvert remained considerably cold during that time, Carla's body was kept well-preserved. This was great news for the medical examiner, but it also raised questions about the time of her death. According to the autopsy report, Carla died days before her body was found. But many of the responding detectives disagreed. Based on what they saw with their own eyes, they were convinced that Carla died within hours of her body being found. Either way, the medical examiner also concluded that Carla had been repeatedly 
sexually assaulted, and there was no debate about that. I remember he told me that he believed because there was so much fluid in her vagina that he felt like she had been raped twice, at least twice after she was dead. The most bizarre thing about Carla's autopsy was that the medical examiner found morphine in her system. In 1974, morphine was not a common drug. Back then, most people had never even heard of it, and it was primarily used to treat pain for U.S. soldiers in Vietnam. Our big secret was the, was the drugs. Mm-hmm. So we focused on people at the Air Force Hospital and you know, anybody that might have access to that kind of stuff. In addition to investigating military hospitals, detectives also questioned Rodney McCoy several times. As far as they could tell, his injuries were consistent with his story about the bowling alley abduction. And if Rodney was ever considered a suspect, that suspicion didn't last long. But I was there when we brought Rodney in. Do you recall what type of injuries he did have on his body? It looked like somebody hit him upside the head with a pistol. I know he was still very distraught when we talked to him. One very important piece of evidence which only further corroborated Rodney's story, was the handgun clip that the police had found on the ground in the bowling alley parking lot. Police quickly identified the type of pistol it belonged to as a 22 caliber Ruger. We got a list, a huge list of uh, Ruger 22s that had been shipped to retailers in this area, and we tried to trace as many of them as we could, and uh, with not much luck, I mean, you know, that's uh, kind of like a needle in a haystack. Detectives followed up on the countless leads relating to the gun clip that was found at the bowling alley. One person it led them to was a young father by the name of Glenn McCurley, who had purchased an identical clip from a gun store shortly after Carla's murder. Did they tell you why they were looking for a 22? Well, they said there was, some, there was somebody, a little girl had gotten captured or something. They were investigating because they found a clip. I said, well, you sure got the wrong fellow because those clips are all the same. Ultimately, Glenn explained that he was just buying a spare clip for his pistol. He was found to have no prior connection to Carla, and he also volunteered to take a lie detector test, which he passed, as did many other potential suspects. After a few weeks, the leads started to dry up. So detectives turned to alternative crime-solving methods and hired a psychic. Not surprisingly, that didn't give them much of anything worth pursuing. So they decided to have Rodney McCoy hypnotized. The hope was that through hypnosis, Rodney could provide more details about the night of Carlo's abduction. The main thing that we want here is every possible detail that could help us prevent some other family and other friends being subjected to the same trauma that you and your friends and Carla's parents and everybody else have been subjected to. You can't do anything about Carla. She's gone. If you can't help her, at least at least you can give her life some meaning. If we can find some way to find the individual that did it. Feels good to relax and let go and let your body drift deep asleep while your mind remains awake. I'm going to count from 10 to 0, and I want you to feel yourself relaxing more and more deeply with each count as I do count. After Rodney was supposedly placed under hypnosis, 
he described what he could recall of the frantic few moments of Carlo's abduction. One. I grabbed Carlo, falling out. I look up and his gun is on my face. He's standing on the tree. And I can see him. He pulled it out and I can see her sitting there, screaming. You see her sitting where? On the ground. She's got a hold of her arm. First thing I notice is his short hair. It's like kind of a skinny nose. Looks like some kind of Unfortunately, the only new information that came out of this experiment was a slightly better description of Carla's kidnapper. And it still wasn't very much for police to go on. At this point, all leads and all options had seemingly been exhausted. And Carla's case went cold. Very cold. In February of 2019, 45 years after Carla's murder, cold case detectives in Fort Worth met with the surviving members of Carla's immediate family, her brother Jim and her sister Cindy. The detectives explained to Jim and Cindy that identifying Carla's killer was going to be an uphill battle, mainly because identification through DNA was impossible. Okay, so let me let me tell you something. I don't know if anybody's ever told you this before. The sperm is gone. Right. There's was, no sperm. I knew it was consumed. No, it was never received. For some unknown reason, the semen that the medical examiner extracted from the inside of Carla was never received into evidence. The only semen sample that the cold case detectives had came from Carla's dress. And it was such a small amount that only a partial DNA profile could be developed. This partial profile could be used to exclude some suspects, but it could never conclusively identify her killer. Even so, the cold case detectives pressed on, and they decided to make several assumptions that were different from the assumptions made by detectives in 1974. First, they decided to agree with the medical examiner's conclusion that Carla had died several days before her body was found. When Carla's death was first reported, the media claimed that Carla had been held captive and tortured for days. But that information was in direct contradiction with the autopsy report. Well, we were always told that she was kept alive for two or three days. And I don't know him. So... So right here, let me show you real quick. This is the autopsy. Dead for two two days. days. Wow. At least. At least two days. Based on the autopsy report, the cold case detectives presumed that Carla was likely killed soon after she was abducted, and that she had not been held captive for days. Likewise, the detectives that initially investigated Carla's murder mostly operated on the assumption that this was a random crime of opportunity. They believed that the killer had never met Carla before. The cold case detectives, however, planned to take a different approach. Somebody that knew your sister probably did this. Yes. I don't think it was a stranger. I don't think it was some random dude. It was somebody that knew your sister. She was a beautiful young lady. She was popular. She had reasons for either people to be infatuated with her or envious of her. Finally, there was the rare drug that was found in Carla's system, morphine. 
It had always been assumed that the killer injected morphine into Carla, but the cold case detectives wondered if somehow Carla had simply taken the drug on her own before she was abducted. The night that Carla was kidnapped, she was drinking and smoking pot. Maybe, just maybe, someone had given her a morphine pill as well. In case you're wondering, yes, morphine can come in the form of a pill. We're looking at this from a different perspective. And one of those is that the morphine may have been something that she had tried recreationally Mm -hmm. and that it had maybe lowered her ability to maybe fight back or something, but that it wasn't necessarily something that somebody put into her. Right. After Carla's case was reopened, the cold case detectives wanted to stir up new leads. So they decided to release a very cryptic piece of evidence that was never revealed to the public. Way back in 1974, only a few weeks after Carla was murdered, the Fort Worth Police Department received several anonymous letters from someone claiming to know who had killed Carla. Friday, Fort Worth Police released a new piece of evidence from their cold case files. This letter. It shares a person's name. Written anonymously those 45 years ago and sent to police. The person wrote they know who killed Carla Walker in Benbrook, with a postscript that says it's hard to say, but it is true. And they signed only with ones and zeros for their name. The author of these mysterious letters named who they believed to be the killer. But when the police released one of the letters to the public, the name given was redacted. The letter read, quote, blank killed Carla Walker. It's hard to say, but it's true, end quote. The purpose of releasing this letter was to see if anyone recognized the handwriting, but it was also meant to get people talking, specifically people who were prominent in Carla's life around the time of the murder. And those people did start talking. They talked quite a bit. One of Carla's schoolmates created a Facebook group that was dedicated to discussing Carla's murder. And this led to a recorded phone conversation where one of Carla's classmates admitted that around the time of Carla's murder, he had something that was especially pertinent to the case. Forty-some years ago, my dad was a doctor. I came across these really cool canvas medic packs. I got the brilliant idea one time that I was going to take a bunch of them up to the Army-Navy store where we bought our red dot bell bottoms. Okay, so I had to shit dry them in my car. Inside of it was a piece of paper that said, Morphine. Jay Broussard lived in Fort Worth, Texas from 1957 through the 1980s. He attended high school with Carla, and to many of his classmates, Jay was known as a drug dealer. After cold case detectives were made aware that Jay had morphine around the time of Carla's murder, they asked him to come in for questioning, and Jay agreed. I knew Carla as a schoolmate. They ran in a different group than I did. Carla was more with the jocks. They would kind of call them the socials or whatever. I was more of a band geek. According to Jay, Carla was more of an acquaintance than she was a friend. Just like everyone else at their school, Jay knew who Carla was, but he rarely spoke or interacted with her. When asked about the morphine, Jay admitted that he had the drug around the time of Carla's murder, 
and that he was most likely the source of the morphine found in her system. But he claimed that he never sold it to her, and that most of his supply had been stolen from his car. To his credit, the fact that morphine was found in Carla's system didn't become widely known until decades after her murder. Initially, this was a well-guarded detective secret, and Jay likely didn't know about it for many years. Jay never lied about having morphine. He actually seemed quite eager to tell police about it. I wish morphine was in there. There was probably, I don't know about that, while the pills were the same size as a saccharin tablet. Little tiny things. When it comes down to Carla's situation, where did they get the morphine? I'm not proud of the fact they took the morphine from me. I'm not here to tell you I'm proud of that at all. I didn't sell it, but they did get some from me. After he answered some questions about his morphine supply, the detectives wanted to know what Jay remembered about the night Carla was kidnapped. And Jay claimed that he and a few friends spent the night driving around town, mostly looking for a good time. In the beginning of the night, we first off, we went to Taco Bell. That's where everybody hung out was Taco Bell. Okay. At some point in the evening, Rodney McCoy and Carla Walker were there with their friends. There at Taco Bell? At Taco Bell. Okay. They were both kind of a little bit altered. Okay. So you felt like they were either intoxicated or high. Yeah. Jay's account of seeing an intoxicated Rodney and Carla with friends that night made sense. If you remember, after leaving the Valentine's Day dance, Rodney and Carla had a few drinks and smoked some pot before they arrived at Taco Bell. Jay claimed that after leaving Taco Bell, he and his friends drove around Benbrook Lake, hoping to find a party. They did find one, but ultimately decided not to stay and ended up at the bowling alley where, once again, Jay saw Rodney McCoy. We went back to the bowling alley. I did not see Carla in that bowling alley, but I did see Rodney McCoy sitting in his car by himself. And when we left, he was gone. In addition to seeing Rodney at the bowling alley, Jay also claimed that he saw two other schoolmates, Bo Smith and Brian Futch. We saw Bo and Brian two two times that night. One time was in the parking lot of the bowling alley, the other time was... uh, passing them on the road. So when you saw Bo and Brian driving around, were they by themselves? Yes. Or did they have anybody in No, they were by themselves. Billy Owen Smith, who most people referred to simply as Bo, was Carla Walker's ex-boyfriend. And Brian Futch was Bo's best friend. According to Jay, Bo and Brian were at the bowling alley on the night of Carla's abduction. Naturally, During their investigation, cold case detectives met and spoke with Bo, who at that point was in considerably poor health. But I've known Carla my whole life. She was my little girlfriend when we were young, because there was a glow about her. But anyway. There was a what about her? A glow. A glow about her? I remember that one year she got with Rodney. I don't even remember During his recorded phone conversation, and again during his police interview, Jay Broussard proposed a theory of what happened to Carla on the night she was kidnapped, and he pointed the finger directly at Bo and Bo's best friend, 
Brian Futch. Let me tell you what I think happened. Okay. She was seeing Bo on the side. Oh. Wanted to get back, wanted to get back with Bo. Okay. But she was scared. She was scared that her dad wouldn't approve of it because Bo was kind of a dumb shit, you know what I mean? And Rodney was the high school football player and all this. Oh. She comes out of the bathroom, gets back in the car. Bo goes over to her door, opens up the door, Brian's on, on Rodney's door, bam, Rodney's cold cocked. So he's got the shit knocked out of him, and Carla said, I'll just go with them and they won't hurt you. So Rodney lied about not knowing who did it. They got morphine from me, so you put the rest of it together yourself. Who had motivation to go talk to Carla? Who had, some, who had a bone to pick with Rodney McCoy? her ex-boyfriend. Who else is going to grab Carla and take Carla? Who else is going to do that but Bo and Brian? I believe that Carla Walker died shortly after this happened. I believe she died at the lake, and I believe that it wasn't a murder, murder. Since she was all fucked up, I think Brian might have day raped her, and she got pissed off about it, he strangled her ass. Jay's theory about Bo and Brian wasn't backed up by anything other than the fact that he saw them both at the bowling alley, and that he knew their reputations were, let's say, less than favorable. But the cold case detectives actually did entertain the idea that Bo could have been involved in, or even responsible for, Carla's murder. Where were you the night of the dance? I was Bobby Baird, my girlfriend. The night, did you take her to the dance? Yeah. Okay. Did you see Rodney and Carla at the dance? No. I was probably too plastered to see. <laughs> no, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was out of it that night. Okay. I mean, drinking. Right. And I don't did know you why go to the bowling alley that night? Would there have been any reason for you to have gotten into an altercation with Rodney the night of the Valentine's party? I never struck one person. By now, you should be noticing that Bo isn't all there. Not all of his dogs are barking, if you know what I mean. Well, there's a reason for that. In 1975, about a year after Carla Walker's murder, Bo suffered a traumatic head injury that impaired several of his cognitive functions, including memory. Him and Brian Fudge had an accident or they were on acid or something and had a wreck on a motorcycle or something. Bo did anything to Carla, he doesn't even remember it now. If Bo was responsible for Carla's murder, there was a chance he didn't even know about it. And after Bo voluntarily provided a DNA sample so the police could exclude him as a suspect, he said one of the most tragic things I have ever heard in my life. When will I know if I did it or not? You know what? You already know. Huh? I said, you already know. I don't know. Only God knows. But if I did it, I want to be punished. When will I know? if I did it or not. Can you imagine not knowing and waiting for a DNA test to find out if you're responsible for kidnapping, raping, and murdering a teenager? In any case, since Bo's memory was lacking, if he and his best friend Brian Futch did kill Carla, the only person that could provide any details about it was Brian. How well did you know Carla? 
That's a good question. I mean, we were on first name basis. We were, you know, you know, it wasn't like we really hung out or anything. But I mean, you know, we were just good friends. Who did she date of your friends? Uh, Bo Smith. Okay. And I guess it's Rodney. It's only two I, I can recall. According to Brian Futch, he didn't remember where he was on the night of Carla's kidnapping. But he did admit he could have been out and about in the area of the bowling alley. Did you go to a party out at Lake Finbrook on that Friday night? It's quite, it's quite possible. You know, there's a party. I was there. You know, a beer bust. Mm-hmm. I was there. I mean, I, I know I was there. Much like Jay Broussard, Brian Futch was more of an acquaintance to Carla than he was a friend. Brian and Carla had shared a few classrooms together, but they didn't speak much. Yet, when the detectives asked Brian who he thought might be responsible for her murder, he had a suspiciously emotional reaction to that question. I mean, none of the people I knew had anything against Rodney. Nobody. How do you think it's Carla? I don't... I don't know who could have done something. I don't. She never hurt nobody. Never. She never made it nobody. When Detective Wagner asked you about your gut feeling about what happened, and you started to respond to that... I'm not sure what my... Feeling where I mean, it was just shocked something had happened to her. You know, it wasn't like we were buddy buddies, but I mean, I've known Carla for like 10 years, you know. Was Brian's reaction caused by genuine sadness, or was it the result of a long kept secret and feelings of tremendous guilt? As detectives pondered this question, they spoke with yet another classmate of Carla's, who provided a second-hand account of someone that claimed to have seen Carla at the bowling alley on the night she was abducted. This account lent a small bit of credence to the theory that Bo and Brian could have been involved in Carla's murder. Then I called my friend Lynn. She got straight into the bowling alley because she was there that night. Anyway, she was sitting at the jukebox area and... Carla come through the front door and sat down with her and talked. And Rodney wasn't with her at that time. She sat there for a little bit and then she went to the bathroom. She said, I gotta go to the bathroom. And Carla come out of the bathroom and the two guys come through the back door. They had on, Lynn says, parka jackets with hoods. And Carla, like right here, Mm -hmm. they turned around and went out the door with her. The strange thing about this alleged sighting of Carla is that the witness didn't claim that the two mysterious men followed Carla out of the bowling alley, but rather that Carla walked out the door with them. If those two men were Bo and Brian, did Carla know they were there? Might she have known that Bo and Brian were going to ambush Rodney? Was it all some kind of setup? Of course, That assumes that Bo and Brian were guilty. But if they were, wouldn't Rodney have recognized them when they attacked? After all, they were schoolmates. Bo and Rodney were even on the same football team. They knew each other. 
If Bo and Brian did kidnap Carla, or if Carla left with them willingly, that means that Rodney almost certainly lied about what happened. And if you remember, when he arrived at the Walker's house later that night, he was screaming the words, they got her. Not him. They. Where does the they come in? He's describing one guy. Mm -hmm. I've always had questions about that. I've just had a feeling for many, many, many years that what Rodney said did not take place at that parking lot. So those are all things that you're kind of exploring and looking? Yes. Okay. What we do know is that Rodney has at least lied on a few different occasions. So why lie unless you're covering something? We have not eliminated Rodney as a suspect at this point. As a matter of fact, he's very much in the mix with other people that we're still looking at. In addition to the pluralization that Rodney used to initially describe Carla's supposed kidnapper, there was also one other piece of evidence that suggested Rodney was lying. Remember that mysterious anonymous letter that police released to the media? So Jeff found some anonymous letters written, and we're going to redact some information on that, but what we would like to do is possibly put those out in the public to see if anybody recognizes the handwriting. Written to the Fort Worth Police? Yes. Okay. And it's somebody who is claiming to have knowledge of who did it. Did they? But they did it anonymously. The anonymous author of these letters claimed to know who was responsible for Carla's murder, and they provided a name. But when police released one of the letters to the media, the name was redacted. Well, surprise, surprise. The name given was Rodney McCoy, Carla's boyfriend. And there was also a postscript that the police never shared. It read, quote, P.S. Her boyfriend is the killer. End quote. After performing countless interviews and combing through a mountain of evidence, the cold case detectives did one last thing before they finally cracked the case. They sent all of the torn clothing that Carla was wearing on the night she was kidnapped to a lab for additional DNA testing. Up to this point, the police only had a partial DNA profile, which was created from a small amount of semen recovered from Carla's dress. Well, this time, even more semen was recovered from Carla's bra, which provided detectives with a complete DNA profile. In order to uncover the truth and identify Carla's killer, all they had to do was match that DNA with one of the many, many people they had interviewed. And that's exactly what they did. In early 2019, cold case detectives in Fort Worth, Texas, reopened the unsolved murder of 17-year-old Carla Walker, who was abducted, raped, and strangled to death in February of 1974. Initially, these detectives were only able to obtain a partial DNA profile of Carla's killer. 
But after further testing was completed on Carla's clothes, a complete DNA profile was created. In order to identify the killer, detectives used the same method that was used by investigators in California in 2018 to identify the Golden State Killer, a serial rapist and murderer that had remained elusive for over four decades. In 2019, a new male DNA profile was found on Carla's clothing. It was compared with samples in a genealogical database, one people give their DNA to so they can find relatives. A hit came back. Detectives used a genealogy website to identify distant and close relatives of Carla Walker's killer. When the results came back, a family surname was given to the police. The name was McCurley. If that name sounds familiar to you, it should. Remember this guy? Did they tell you why they were looking for a 22? They said there was was somebody, a little girl had gotten captured or something. They were investigating because they found a clip. I said, well, you sure got the wrong fella because those clips are all the same. Glenn Samuel McCurley was 31 years old when Carla was murdered. At that time, he was married, had two young sons, and was living in Fort Worth, Texas. During the original investigation, Glenn was briefly considered a person of interest after the police were alerted that he had purchased a clip for a 22 caliber pistol, which was the same type of clip that was found at the bowling alley where Carla was abducted. However, when questioned, Glenn volunteered to take a lie detector test, and he passed. So the police moved on. In 2020, when cold case detectives had Glenn brought into the police station to re-interview him about Carla Walker's murder, he was still living in Fort Worth, was still married, and was 77 years old. Mr. McCurley? Hi, do you remember us? We're here because we are looking into the murder of Carla Walker. And we've done a very thorough investigation. We know what happened and our evidence has led us to you. Then I did something to that girl? Yes, sir. I don't think so. You don't think so what? That I did. I, I don't know. I've never seen the girl or anything. When was I supposed to have done this? You say it's what? What's her name? Carla Walker. I've never seen her and never met her. Uh-huh. Never talked to her. I wouldn't know her uh-huh. if she was standing beside of me. At the start of Glenn's police interview, he didn't know that police had recently taken trash from Glenn's garbage bins and compared the DNA found on that trash with the DNA found on Carla's clothing. It was a match. Glenn was not aware that the evidence conclusively pointed at him, so he lied and attempted to talk his way out of the situation. Well, I just, I don't know the girl. I've never seen her. So do you want to discuss it? I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. I'm 77 years old and I'm not into that kind of stuff. Mr. McCurley, you seem like you're a nice man. You do. But I have to say, I still don't believe you. I don't don't believe a word coming out of your mouth. 
You were the one that did it. You kidnapped her. You you took her and you killed her. Okay? No, I didn't. You did. You did. Carla was 17 years old. 17. She had a family. She had a boyfriend that she was going to marry. And you took that away from her. Okay? I didn't. I didn't do that to that girl. So you're still trying to tell me you don't know anything about this? I don't know anything about her. Okay. Ms. McCurley, this really is your time to be able to get this off your chest and to say if what happened. If it was happened. on my chest, I didn't do anything like that. I did not do anything like that. No, this is a heavy weight to carry. It's not because I haven't done anything. After a whole lot of back and forth, the detectives eventually revealed that Glenn's semen was recovered from Carla's clothing. The DNA was his and nobody else's. What we're saying, Mr. McCurley, is that your DNA was found on Carla Walker. Okay? So there's no question about it. None. I don't, I can't explain. Well, there's an explanation. You know how it happened. We just need you to tell us. I can't say that I did something that I didn't do. I can't go to prison either. After the DNA evidence was revealed, Glenn continued to deny for a short while. But eventually, he began to sob and finally confessed. You need to be able to let it loose because that's the only way. It's the only way forward is for you to let it go. I did do it. Can you tell us what happened? I'd been out drinking quite a bit. I had problems. I don't remember what there was now, but I'd parked in the parking lot, bowling ball place. I heard a girl screaming in the car Mm -hmm. over a couple of cars away from me. I went over there to see if I could help. Glenn tried to explain that on the night of Carla's murder, he was only acting as a good Samaritan. He claimed that after a night of drinking, he parked at the bowling alley and saw Rodney beating up Carla inside of Rodney's car. So Glenn decided to intervene. She was screaming and yelling, and I opened the car door to help her out and had her. Had a tussle with him, trying to get him off of her. I was pushing him, got her and put her in my car, and got her calmed down. I drove around for 10 or 15 minutes and then parked at another parking lot and was talking to her. Well, she just was thankful that I got her away from him. According to Glenn, after rescuing Carla from her abusive boyfriend, this 17-year-old girl was so thankful that she agreed to allow Glenn to have sex with her. In response to this version of the story, detectives stated the obvious. She, she had a stellar reputation. She was Little Miss All-American. You know, she was a virgin. She's just not going to have sex with some stranger when she's been with her little boyfriend for a couple of years. She didn't want to have sex with her boyfriend. Logic tells you that she most definitely didn't want to have sex with a stranger. We need to know that you forced her to have sex, okay? Because there was definitely evidence of rape. Yeah, I guess I did, but I don't remember any any 
bad part of it until I got scared about it. Right. What made you scared? I was afraid that she'd tail on me or something. Glenn McCurley abducted Carla from her boyfriend's car and drove to a nearby parking lot where he violently beat and raped Carla several times. Then out of fear that Carla would talk about what was done to her, Glenn wrapped his hands around this helpless teenager's throat and strangled her to death. How did you kill her? I just choked her. Did you you choke her before or after you had sex with her? After. After. How long did you spend with her? Just the time it took, I guess. Not long after murdering Carla, Glenn dumped her in a cement culvert near Benbrook Lake. The body was found three days later. Since the culvert was cold, dry, and provided protection from the sun, Carla's body was kept preserved, which raised questions about the time of her death. Despite the autopsy report, many detectives believed that Carla had been kept alive and tortured for days. In reality, Glenn was only with Carla for a few hours. The original detectives incorrectly presumed Carla's time of death, but they were right about one thing that the cold case detectives got wrong. This was a random killing and a crime of opportunity. Carla had never met and did not know her killer. After confessing to detectives, Glenn McCurley was taken to jail. At the arraignment, he pleaded not guilty, but after the second day of his trial, Glenn reversed his plea. It was a stunning admission, 47 years in the making. To that, you may plead guilty or not guilty. What is your plea? Are you pleading guilty because you are guilty and for no other reason? Finally, 47 years after committing the crime, Glenn McCurley admitted in court to kidnapping and murdering Carla Walker in 1974. After which, Glenn was immediately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Although the case has been solved and the guilty punished, there are still some mysteries surrounding Carla's murder. For police, the most important unanswered question is whether or not Glenn McCurley has killed anyone else. Glenn's crime isn't typically something that someone does once and just stops. And Glenn was a free man for nearly 50 years after Carla was killed. At sentencing, when family impact statements were read, Carla's sister encouraged Glenn to come forward about any other crimes he may have committed. I want to know everything, but I want to know if you've done this to anybody else, you need to bring that out because those families need to know too. You have nothing to lose at this point. What makes you think that there might be more? Just the way he did Carla. He was hunting that night. To date, Glenn has not confessed to any other murders. And as far as the police can tell, the only other crime he has committed is car theft. If McCurley has killed anyone else, we may never know. Something else that we may never know is who wrote and sent the anonymous letter that named Rodney McCoy as Carla's killer. 
if by chance that person is still out there and listening to this podcast, fuck you. It takes a real piece of shit to anonymously and incorrectly name someone as a killer and interfere with the investigation that's attempting to solve the murder of a 17-year-old. Also, who gave Carla morphine? Carla's schoolmate and alleged drug dealer Jay Broussard admitted that he had a supply of morphine while attending Western Hills High, so we know that the drug was floating around Carla's school around the time of her death. But who physically handed the pill or pills to Carla? Finally, on the night of Carla's abduction, why did Rodney McCoy tell Carla's family that they got her? Given that only one man abducted Carla, why didn't he say he got her? And I'm beating on the door, ringing the doorbell. I don't remember what it was. Cindy, I think, answered the door. And I was telling her, you know, they got her. They got her. And to this day, I don't, I don't know why I was using that, you know, they meaning that one person. Because that's, to me, there was only one person. Rodney McCoy had been pistol whipped to the point of passing out. More than likely, when he finally arrived at the Walker home that night, he was in such a state of panic and delirium that he didn't even know what he was saying. After Carla's abduction, before the body was found, Rodney stayed at the Walker house while the search took place. He waited for news about Carla, and on the third day of the search, Carla's sister broke the news to Rodney that his girlfriend was dead. So they allowed you to basically camp out at their house? Oh, they wanted me to. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. Fort Worth Police, I think they had called and said, we think we found Carla. Mm -hmm. And I was in Cindy's room upstairs. Mm -hmm. And she came up and said they found her. It's her. What was going through your mind when that happened? I collapsed on the floor and just, I lost her. I didn't, I lost her. Following the murder and Carla's funeral, Rodney soon returned to high school and finished out his senior year, unable to cope with the memories of what happened. After graduating, he moved to Alaska and mostly lost touch with Carla's family. With Mr. Walker, mm-hmm. it was like, I let him down. It was hard. It was hard to, you know, I felt responsible for her. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, sure, I'm sure he felt differently, though. Everybody says he did. But, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy told me the story about, because I can tell you, it was living hell at that house. Carla's parents went to their graves, never knowing who raped and murdered their daughter. Meanwhile, Glenn McCurley lived a full life. He made a living as a truck driver, raised two sons, and likely shared many happy moments with his wife. All the while, a cloud of suspicion hung over Rodney McCoy as the agony of what if often plagued his mind. You know, I have normal days. 
And it's not it's not all trudge and I laugh. Mm-hmm. I tell jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, it just something reminds you and, and it's just like I had, a, I had a friend that I saw at the uh, reunion. Him and his wife have been together since uh, high school. Mm-hmm. She was a cheerleader and all that, and they're still together. And they got like five or six kids, and they still love each other to this day and everything. And, and, and you know, and, and that had made me think about you know back then. I, <sighs> there is an incomprehensible degree of cruelty that accompanies the rape and murder of anyone. But what is often not spoken about is the cruelty it takes to remain silent about those acts for this amount of time. Glenn McCurley was likely an entirely different person by the time police arrested him for Carla's murder. But his cruelty was no less palpable in 2020 than it was in 1974 when he raped and murdered a teenage girl. I always thought, I always thought that somebody would come forward mm-hmm. with some information, something. Mm-hmm. I mean, how could a person do something like that and keep it to themselves? That, that was the hardest thing for me to, that somebody could be that cruel to keep it to themselves mm-hmm. over something so, so horrible. Glenn McCurley had decades to come forward and admit what he had done. He could have provided Carla's parents, family, and friends with answers, but he chose not to. He kept silent as countless others suffered. The saying goes, justice delayed is justice denied. After all, at 77 years old, how much time will Glenn McCurley really serve? before he dies in prison. Still, the real justice and the most important aspect of solving Carla's murder is that Carla's siblings and her high school boyfriend, Rodney McCoy, finally got answers. This was a lot of healing going on in there today for not just me and my family, but our whole community. He hung a cloud of suspicion on me for all those years. I mean, that's, that's torment. And our hope is that this case can help spur more testing, especially this new kind of DNA testing, and maybe we can solve some cases and bring more closure to more families. That's our goal now, is to help other Carla Walker families. There's other families out there just like ours. Ours is no more important than any other family. Say what you will about the ways that technology has changed life in America, and the world, for that matter. But it was in large part science and technology that solved Carla Walker's murder. Forensic science continues to improve every single day, and there are still countless murders waiting to be solved all over the world. To those out there that are responsible and that have avoided prosecution for many years, be sure to enjoy every single free breath of life you take. because. You never know if or when the day will come that you will hear a loud knock on your front door and find the law and justice waiting on the other side to take you away and make you finally atone for your crimes. 
That's going to do it for this episode of Sword Skill. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, stay safe. My name is Katie. I'm a college student, um, and I just wanted to say that I really, really like your podcast. Um, I would what I'm probably what you consider a member of the left, like if you love to refer to it. As, <laughs> but um, you know, I I don't really care because you're you're awesome. Like. Um, I don't really think your politics, like, you know, overwhelm your storytelling. You just speak with common sense and logic, and I love that. And I love your roast of, like, the people and the stories that did something wrong. Um, it's just really amazing. So I just wanted to call and tell you that. Uh, you have a fan here in New Mexico. So thank you.